0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Christianity is not a game. I need to say that because many American Christians and churches just seem so unserious about their faith. Many people claim Christ, but they deny him the right to shape who we are and how we live and how we interact with other people. We're happy to be Christians so long as that doesn't interfere with living how we want to live, as long as we can squeeze our faith into the periphery of our lives. Christianity can have an hour on Sunday mornings if we like the sermon and if the singing is up to our standards, but it had better not challenge us or ask us to do anything painful or difficult or uncomfortable. Many American Christians seem interested in the Bible only as a grab bag of inspirational quotes that we can post on social media to look holy, or we treat the church as a country club or as an entertainment facility or as a daycare. Or we promise to pray for others, not because we really intend to, but because it's an easy way to shut down awkward conversations about the hard things that other people are facing. And when we do pray, it's almost always just about ourselves and our own families, and we're almost always just praying about our own health and our own wealth. Evangelism, well, that's somebody else's problem. We reduce Christianity to a political identity. Oh, did you vote for the right party? Are you pro-life and pro-family values? Well, then, you must be a Christian. Or these days, are you pro-social justice? Are you woke? You must be a Christian. Does this sound familiar? People want to look like Christians and talk about being Christians more than actually being Christians. We're not that interested in Christ or his lordship or his word, which we are called to obey. Christianity, for a great many people today, is a show. It's a game more than a reality. But friends, this is a dangerous game to play. In 2 Timothy 3, the apostle Paul says that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. And then he says this, and it's a very interesting phrase. He says, they will have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And my guess is that this is the average experience of Christianity in our country today. We like the appearance of godliness. But we aren't interested in the reality and the power of God. We want the trappings, but not the substance. But friends, there is a real power in the gospel of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is power. The power to make ruined sinners into redeemed children of God. The power to give the spiritually dead eternal life. The power that defeated Satan and his demons at the cross. The power that will one day subjugate this world under the rule of Jesus. But if Christianity involves us with the very real power of the living God who created all things and was mighty enough to raise Jesus from the dead, then why do we settle for the empty veneer of Christianity light? I think the answer is this. The gospel makes real and difficult demands on our lives, and we're not interested in those demands. Oh, we want the fire insurance, but we don't really want the daily grind of battling for holiness. We don't want the awkwardness of living as exiles as strangers in a strange land, as people whose primary allegiance and interest is not in the things of this world. And so we try to compromise. We try to find a middle road. Yes, yes, I'll have some Christianity, the parts that make me feel good, the parts that don't make demands on my life, but the rest of it, I can live without that. And those other parts of our lives, we're content to just blend in with the world around us, not realizing that every concession that we make to the world Only reduces the influence and power of God over our lives. And weakening the the life that should be a vibrant life of faith, and it's watering it down to a hollow faux Christianity. Friends, this is what we're going to talk about today as we look at the book of Daniel, chapter 3. We can't serve two masters. We've got to pick. Will we serve Christ or will we serve the rebellious world system? You can't serve both. And we'll see that today in four points. First, the world system wants us to bow to its idols. Second, the people of God must resist the idols of this world. Third, resisting the idols of this world will generate hardship and danger for the people of God. But fourth, the Lord will deliver us through the fiery trials generated by our loyal obedience. Start with the first point, which is that the world system wants us to bow to its idols. Daniel chapter 3. Now, in this book, we've been following the lives of four Jewish men, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whom the Babylonians renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we've seen over the last few weeks that these men were taken as captives in their teenage years, and they were relocated from their hometown of Jerusalem, uh, and they were dragged off to Babylon, which was the capital city of the greatest empire of the world in that day. And they were taken captive because they were the best and the brightest of the Jewish people. They had been selected to be trained to become officers in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. But through a series of events that we saw in the first two chapters, although these men were fairly young, they became not only officials in the Babylonian Empire, they became the most trusted advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel became the chief advisor, and he was made the administrator of the province of Babylon, the center of the empire. He was running things from the royal palace under King Nebuchadnezzar, according to the end of chapter 2. Meanwhile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, they became administrators who worked around the province of Babylon, and they made sure that things were running properly under the king's rule. And that's where we left things last week. But now as chapter three begins, some time has passed. The book doesn't tell us how much time, but in chapter three we see that Daniel's friends are no longer called youths, they're called men. They've grown up. But while some time has passed, Daniel and his friends are still in the same positions they were in at the end of chapter two. We'll see next week that Daniel's still in the palace, and he's still the closest confidant to Nebuchadnezzar. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remain as administrators connected to the province of Babylon. And that's where we pick up today in Daniel chapter three. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So our setting today is the province of Babylon, but not the city. We're not going to be in the royal palace today, and so we're not going to see Daniel at all in this chapter. Instead, we're on the plain of Dura, which is a flat area outside of Babylon and at Dura Nebuchadnezzar erected a massive image. Now this word image is a term that refers to an idol which was used in pagan worship. And this idol has some odd dimensions. It stands 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now these numbers were important numbers in Babylon. You know in our world today our numerical system is geared to the number 10 but in ancient Babylon their numbering system was geared to the number 60. If you've ever wondered why there are 60 minutes in an hour or 60 seconds in a minute or 360 degrees in a circle, that comes from the math of Babylon. And so this idol's proportions involve these numbers 60 and 6, which were important to the Babylonians. This idol was imbued in some way with symbolism related to the Babylonian culture and people. But even so, these proportions would look quite odd, being 10 times taller than it was wide. With proportions like that, this was not just a a statue of a person. Perhaps this was an obelisk, sort of like the Washington Monument. Or maybe this was a statue that rested on a gigantic pedestal. Archeologists have found giant pedestals in the area outside of Babylon. We don't know what this image looked like, but it was huge. It's 25% larger than the Colossus of Rhodes, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And not only was it huge, it was golden. Perhaps it was solid gold, or at least it was covered in gold. This would have been a spectacular sight to behold, dominating the landscape of the greatest city in the world. It's gold shimmering in the desert sun. Now, there's a very old interpretation of this passage which says that this image was a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, that inspired by the dream he had in chapter 2 in which he was represented as a golden head connected to a great statue, that in the same way Nebuchadnezzar has sought to build a statue in his own honor. possible. But the text does not say that this was an image of Nebuchadnezzar. All we know is that it it was an idol. And we'll see in this passage that Nebuchadnezzar feels a great connection to this idol. His pride and his ambition are wrapped up in this idol. And we begin to see that in verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, The counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar wants to honor the idol that he has built, and so he plans a massive ceremony. And he calls all of the officials, every leader within his whole massive empire, to come to this ceremony. Now, at its peak, Nebuchadnezzar's empire dominated most of what we call the Middle East today. So this would have been a massive organizational effort in ancient times to get all these people together at the same time in this one place. But Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. What he wants happens. And so the governors and the officials from all these places come together, and the ceremony begins. Verse 3. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now we start to see what Nebuchadnezzar is intending with this image. This is an image that has political and religious importance. Nebuchadnezzar has gathered all of these people together around this idol. And in a sense, he is creating Babel of old, right? Here are people from all of these nations, and they've all been brought together at Babylon to to be a part of some kind of idolatrous project. Now, understand that all these people from these different parts of the empire would have had different religions. But Nebuchadnezzar has come and brought them all here so that he can get them all to worship the same false god. He is going to use religion as a tool to facilitate the political integration of his kingdom. And in this, Nebuchadnezzar is like the future king of spiritual Babylon, which is described in Revelation, the Antichrist, who will form an image and who will compel the entire world to worship. But not only is this image religiously significant, it's also politically significant. Nebuchadnezzar intends this idol to become a test of loyalty for all of these various officials who have come by. If they listen to him, if they bow down and worship this idol, then he's going to say, oh, they're loyal guys. And if they don't bow down, he's going to say, that's a disloyal guy. And it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar expected some kind of opposition because he has built a furnace near this idol, So, that anyone who refuses to bow down to the image could be made an example of before all of the leaders in his empire. And these people who refuse to bow will be thrown into the furnace. They will be killed in a horrible way, burned alive. So, those are the terms of the ceremony worship the idol when the music is played, or die screaming. He's a totalitarian dictator. And what happened? Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The leaders from across the empire, they comply. All right. What should we take from these verses? Well, friends, we've said in recent weeks that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you, like Daniel and Daniel's friends, are exiles in this world. This world is not our home. If you have repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus deity, death and resurrection, then Colossians chapter 1 says, "He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son." Philippians 3:20 says, "Our citizenship now is in heaven." Instead of belonging to this world, we have been made as new creations. 2 Corinthians 5 says, "Our true home is the new Jerusalem above." according to Galatians 5 and Hebrews 12. The city which is coming, whose builder is God. That's where we truly belong. But for now, we're here. And this world is in rebellion against its rightful Lord. Satan rules as the functional God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4. And every culture, and every nation, and every institution within every culture and nation is ultimately dancing to Satan's tune. This looks different in different places. India's culture looks different than China's, and China's looks different than America's. But make no mistake, what they all have in common is that they're all in opposition to Christ, and his gospel, and his rule, and his word. And how does the world system oppose Christ? By setting up idols, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Now you might say, well, I haven't seen a gigantic golden image in DC lately. But I tell you, idols today look different than they did in ancient times. At least sometimes they do. In ancient times, people would actually bow down before statues of stone. And that does still happen in some parts of our world today. Just four miles away from our church building is a Hindu temple, where people still bow down in front of such images today. But within most of modern American culture, I would tell you that we have different idols. Not stone idols, but something else. And understand this, I would point you to this very famous verse, Romans 12.1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When Christians use the word worship, we often think about singing. But when the Bible talks about worship, that's not what it means. The Bible means something bigger than that. Worship is what you give your life to, what you live for, what is the center of your being. And Paul tells believers, God's got to be at the center of your being. And we are to worship God in every act of mind and body. That is the worship that God wants from us. But when we devote our lives to something other than God, that is idolatry. That is worshiping something other than the, the God who is real. That's why Colossians 3.5 says that coveting is idolatry. Because it's orienting our lives around something other than God, around possessions. And friends, the world system today generates tons and tons of idols, tons of things that demand our attention and that that tell us, make your life about this, make your life about that. What do people chase in our society? They chase money, right? But there are other idols. Celebrity, immoral sex, power, the pleasure that comes from the mind-numbing use of drugs or alcohol, endless leisure. Luxury, looking good today, a big one is the approval of other people, being seen to believe in the new set of approved values and attitudes, being applaud for applauded for buying into the new ideology. So many idols. And unbelievers chase these idols endlessly. But these idols can stumble the people of God too. You know, the world wants to distract us from Christ and His Great Commission by luring us in to chase these. Idols and friends, we are very susceptible, and I think that's because we want to be susceptible. See, Christians, while God wants us to be strangers in a strange land, often we don't want to do that. If we go around living only for Jesus, we're not going to fit into this world, we're going to stick out like a sore thumb, we're going to get noticed, we're going to catch flack, and a lot of us don't want to face that. And so, while we claim Christ, We also find a comfort and an ease in returning to the idolatry of this world, to chasing the things that unbelievers chase, because that makes this world seem more normal. It makes us seem to fit in a little bit more. And the more we blend in, we notice the less the world will have a problem with us, and we're okay with that, because we don't value what God values. We don't mind seeing our personal effectiveness for Christ reduced, so long as we can have an easier life. And so we compromise with the world. Does this sound familiar? Friends, what idols seduce you? You want to know an easy way to figure out what idols you stumble over? Think about your experience as a Christian. What sins do you find the most difficult to resist? What parts of your Christian life do you most regularly fail in? Identify these areas of repetitious failure and then honestly assess why you keep failing in these areas. If you're not sure, pray for wisdom. But as you examine yourself, you'll begin to see that what your heart values so much and is something that's causing you to not want to surrender that part of your life to Jesus. If you just honestly think, why? Why is this sin keep ensnaring me? You'll figure out what idol is drawing you in. Maybe you say, well, you know, I don't spend much time praying or reading the Bible. I'd say, okay, well, what do you give your time to? That shows where your heart is. Maybe you say, I don't evangelize people. Why not? Whatever's keeping you back is an idol for you. Maybe you're worried about your reputation. Maybe you're worried you're going to lose your friends or you're going to lose the applause of other people. Those are idols for you. Friends, this is where Christianity light comes from, from generations of Christians who thought it was okay to be moderately or mildly committed to Christ, who thought it was okay to keep one foot in heaven and one foot in the world without ever making a choice between the two. And it has brought ruin to the church in our generation. And so what are we to do? Well, we find out in our second point this morning, which is that the people of God must resist the idols of this world. Right? Nebuchadnezzar's ceremony is in full swing. The officials from his empire have worshipped the idol, but suddenly something happens. Verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. These are probably some of the wise men that had run afoul of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And now they come to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, you're going to have a problem with somebody and we can't wait to tell you all about it. All right, what are they going to say? Verse 9, they declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They're the words of flattery, right? You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these wise men come forward and they denounce Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's not hard to figure out their motive. Verse 8 tells us it was malice. These wise men used to have positions of favor in court with the king. And they'd lost that favor. And their positions had gone to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These wise men want their positions back. And they've got a plan. We'll get those three guys thrown in the fiery furnace, and then the king will like us again. They don't care if it's going to kill these these men. They want what's theirs. what's really twisted is, These wise men were only still alive because in chapter 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had prayed for them. Or they prayed for God to give uh, wisdom to Daniel to reveal the king's dream. And before that had happened, all these wise men were under the sentence of death. These guys should have been thankful for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead, they're plotting their deaths. Don't look for gratitude among the envious. But why are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego easy targets for this attack? Because they have refused to bow to the king's image. And that's what I want to focus on. God's people must resist the idols of this world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were loyal servants of Babylon. They had been since their youth. They had, taken, they had allowed their names to be changed to Babylonian names. They no longer went by their Jewish names. That's why we see them repeatedly referred to as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Bible. They had learned the cur- curriculum Babylon had set before them. They had served the king well with good advice for many years. But while they were loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, they recognized that they had a higher duty to God, which is why in chapter 1 they refused to eat the food from the king's table, and why here in chapter 3 they refused to bow to this idol. Because no matter how loyal they are to the state, they cannot overlook the fact that the first words of the Jewish law are, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is under the, uh, under the water, uh, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The Lord is jealous. He does not want his people to divide their affections between him and something else. He wants his people's undivided affection and loyalty. And that's still true today. Jesus said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or I would say you cannot serve God and anything else. This is a stark statement. You can only serve one master, God or fill in the blank. Now, to be sure, at, all t- at times we all wobble between these These competing masters, will we follow the world today? Will we follow God today? We fail. That's why we need God's grace. But Jesus is clear. God demands our absolute allegiance, and he will brook no middle ground. There is no third way. Our lives are either for God or they are against him. The book of James says the same thing in James chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's a stark choice. Do you want friendship with God or friendship with the world? You can't have both. If you pick the world, you put yourself in opposition to God. So friends, we need to see that that God's word for us is to follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to refuse to bow to the world's idols, to not compromise with the world's attempts to soften our allegiance to Christ or to distract us from the lives we're called to, lives of faith and prayer and obedience and evangelism. The world will tempt you. With its vain baubles. Don't let those things become the center of your life. Don't fear seeming strange in this world. If you belong to Jesus, you should be different. You should feel out of place. Because you're an exile. And that can be tough, but it's worth it. Choose friendship with the Lord, not the world. Choose the master who bought you with his own blood. Not the Pied Piper who's leading billions of people to hell. Don't be double-minded. Imagining that you can serve Jesus in some areas of your life while following the course of the world in others. Don't betray Jesus by claiming him with your words while denying him with your life. Joshua said at the end of his life, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose who you will serve, friends. But make no mistake if you buck the urgings of this world, if you choose to live a life marked by service and obedience to the Lord, there will be consequences. And that's what we see in our third point, which is that resisting the idols of this world will generate hardship and danger for the people of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. They were loyal to Babylon. They followed the principles the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. But they also recognize that when the government commands a believer to sin, the believer must follow the example of the apostles in Acts 5.29, saying, we must obey God rather than men. And so just as they did in their younger years, in the matter of the food from the king's table, these men take a stand. They resist the king's edict, and they do not worship the golden image. Now, back in chapter 1, when they took their stand, God gave them favor with their supervisors. They didn't really run into any hardship. But here in chapter 3, that's not what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take a stand, and the person they're accountable to this time does not view it favorably. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. you think Nebuchadnezzar would think kindly about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had been trusted advisors in his court. For years, Nebuchadnezzar had trusted these men more than his wise men, the, the counsel of his own wise men. But Nebuchadnezzar's not thinking clearly in this moment because his pride is on the line. And when your pride is on the line, sometimes we take foolish stands because we don't want to look ridiculous in important moments. And when these Chaldeans approach Nebuchadnezzar in the middle of this ceremony, the leaders of all of his empire are there and they're watching. Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted advisors have failed this test of loyalty with the king. And so Nebuchadnezzar forgets all the loyal deeds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he has them brought in as potential traitors. Verse 13. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now remember, this is still happening at the ceremony. There were a lot of people who would have been finding out that this is happening and start watching that this is happening. The musicians are still present. This is an escalating situation. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this. and So he speaks to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, look, I've received this charge that you won't worship my idol. I'm going to let the music play again. And if you bow down to it, now I'll forgive this transgression, he says. And he's probably thinking, I'm being generous. I'm showing my empire that I'm a forgiving man. Perhaps he even thought he was doing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a a favor because of their past service to him. I'll give these guys a second chance, but not anybody else. But he says, if you won't bow down again, you will be cast into the fiery furnace. I will make an example, a terrifying example to my empire of what happens when you defy me. Now, All of that he's just said is plenty bad enough on its own. Because it's it's wicked and it's idolatrous and it's cruel. But what he says next is really revealing as to where his heart is. Verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar's totally filled with arrogance. That's not a surprise. We've seen for weeks that Babylon was a very arrogant place. They worshipped their own military might. They considered themselves invincible. In Isaiah 47, the prophet reveals what is in the heart of the empire of Babylon. Babylon said in their heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Babylon thought they were God. They think they're almighty. And certainly here in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is playing God. He's usurping God's seat, isn't he? After all, it's God who directs the world to worship an image. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And God says, worship my image, Jesus, or be cast into the fire. That is what God says to the world. But Nebuchadnezzar, instead, he's trying to sit in God's seat, saying, no, 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 worship my image, or I will cast you into the fire. What arrogance. And in this arrogance, he says, no God can deliver you from my hands. He says, I'm more powerful than your God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knows their objection is rooted in religion by saying this. And he's saying this, my power is more real than your God. My furnace is stronger than your God's ability to deliver you. Submit to me, or be burned alive. And it's worth asking, what would you do if you were in these men's shoes? Maybe we think, if that choice was put to me, I would be loyal to the Lord until death. Maybe we think, man, I I don't know if I would be. We'll say more about that in a bit. But, for their part, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are unmoved by the king's claims and his threats. And now they respond, and they say three things back. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They don't deny the charge. Why would they? Of course they won't bow down to the golden image. And they're not interested in his offer of a second chance either. They're not going to bow this time either, because they're committed to their stand. They're loyal to the Lord. Second, they say in verse 17, if this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Nebuchadnezzar just boasted that he's mightier than any god. He's mightier than the Lord. These men reject that boast. They say, our God's going to deliver us from the king's furnace and even from the king's hand, his own power. This would be a total insult to, to Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant claims. Third, they say in verse 18, but if not, if we're not delivered. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They said, we think God's going to deliver us from the furnace. But maybe it is God's will that today we're going to die. But even if that's the case, we're not going to save our lives by compromising here. We will be loyal to the Lord until death. And hearing this and having having seen his generous offer and his own mind thrown back in his face, Nebuchadnezzar is consumed with rage and hatred. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is hardened with a hatred towards these men, who have dared to challenge and oppose his claims and his edict. And verse 20 says, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunic, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery, furnace. The king has these three men seized while they're still wearing their formal wear from the ceremony. He says, you, you heat that furnace and you heat it some more. And he intends now, as, as all of his officials are watching him in his response, he intends to make a statement to his empire. This is what it means to cross Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to do an act of extreme violence. He says, throw these guys into the fiery furnace. Now they do. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. But the guys who throw them in are immediately consumed by a flare that comes up through the chimney and burns them to death. But Nebuchadnezzar, he is unmoved by all of this. Because this isn't about his concern for his subjects or, or any righteous concern. This is all about his ego and his reputation. Now, what I want you to see here is this, friends. If you take a stand for the Lord against the idols of this world, especially if you take a public stand, you should expect hardship and difficulty. We've said that the Lord is jealous for his people. He doesn't want us to divide our loyalties. I would tell you the world is jealous for its worship too. The world wants to seduce us away from following Christ by the vain charms of its idols. But if that fails, the world's next recourse is it will bring its power to bear upon us, to crush us, to make our lives miserable, and maybe even to kill us if we choose to live for Christ. If we choose loyalty to the Lord, and our true home over this world. That's what Jesus says in his prayer in the upper room in John chapter 17. He says, the world has hated them, believers, because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Believing, friends, the world system hates us because we don't belong to it. Listen again to Jesus in John 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. When Jesus walked on this earth, how did the world system treat him? They hated him. They persecuted him. They killed him. We're not greater than Jesus is. If we follow Jesus, this is how the world will treat us too. I'm sure we've all heard this before, but because we live in America where historically Christians have not suffered persecution for their faith, this seems non-real to us. This seems like a distant, remote possibility. I think this is one reason that like Christianity light, as I've called it, has flourished in our society. Because persecution chases the phonies away. But no persecution lets the phonies stick around. Maybe even they gain leadership in churches. And their influence and their worldliness eventually becomes recognized as a normal, acceptable part of the faith. And so compromise becomes normal, and worldliness becomes acceptable. And we wind up with a Christianity that doesn't confront sin, that doesn't demand repentance, that doesn't value the cross, and that doesn't really fear God's wrath. A Christianity that will fold into apostasy when the hard times come, because it's not grounded in the truth, and it's not grounded in the power of God. But friends, this is not true Christianity. This is not the gospel. And if we shake free from this faux Christianity, if we truly begin to live for Christ, make no mistake, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. And then he says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know who doesn't get persecuted? Frauds. But if you're serious about your faith, someday you will face blowback, just like Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you have been called. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. It's part of our Christian calling, friends, to follow Jesus' example. To suffer for the one who once suffered for us. That's not abnormal. That's Christianity 101. Now, we might be troubled by this concept. I'll tell you, you'll be even more troubled the first time you experience this blowback. Because some of this heretical prosperity theology in our world has rubbed off on us. And so the first time we experience hardship, we'll start to think, did I do the right thing? If I'm really trying to honor God, shouldn't it go easier for me than this? The world will try to get us to doubt our choice to stand up for Jesus. But friends, don't forget the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 14.22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you really want to live for Christ, you're going to hit many tribulations. And that's not a sign you're going in the wrong direction. That's a sign you're on the right path because you're following the footsteps of the Savior. And you will end up with him in perfect peace and glory. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, hardship is our lot in life as believers. Thank the Lord we face a lot less of it than people in other countries do or that Christians have faced in the past. But the path of choosing to follow Christ rather than the idols of this world is the path of trial and tribulation. And that is the path that we've been called to walk. But we don't have to walk it alone. And that's our fourth and final point, which is that the Lord will deliver us through the fiery trials that our loyal obedience generates. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. But instead of being horrendously burned to death, something happened that Nebuchadnezzar did not expect. Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Instead of writhing in torment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around the furnace. The furnace that was so hot it was burning people to death on the outside of it. The only thing the fire seems to have done to them is it burned off the the ropes and let them walk around free. But beyond that miracle, Nebuchadnezzar saw something else. A glorious, resplendent person was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one whom Nebuchadnezzar said was like a son of the gods, something so wondrous that all he could think of was Babylonian mythology. And at this, verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselor gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Remember, this is a very public event, an event demonstrated, or an, an event designed to demonstrate Nebuchadnezzar's great power and his new religious icon. But instead of the glitz of the false god, what the attenders get to see is the glory of the living god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerge from the furnace, unsinged. Their clothes are intact, their hair isn't burned, and they don't even smell a smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar, who a few moments earlier was filled with arrogant rage, has been totally humbled before his empire. And he responds appropriately. He praises God. Now, that doesn't mean he got saved. He was an idolater. He died as an idolater. But he recognized the power and the reality of God when he saw it. Verse 28 says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What had been a, uh, a ceremony designed to solidify a new religious uh, order in the empire ends with Nebuchadnezzar honoring Yahweh and protecting the Jewish religion. What had been a ceremony designed to flaunt Nebuchadnezzar's power has become a demonstration that there is one who is mightier than Nebuchadnezzar, the living God. And what had been a plot by the Chaldeans to murder and supplant Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has become an opportunity for these men to advance in the Babylonian empire. And this is the last we read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this book. Presumably, they finished out their days as Nebuchadnezzar's good servants, but God's good servants first. But what are we to take from these final verses? Well, let's talk first about this fourth man in the furnace. Who is he? Well, maybe he's just an angel, like Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28. But Christian commentators for 2,000 years have looked at this and said, This may be the pre-incarnate Christ. This may be God the Son appearing on earth before he took on human flesh. And I think that's right. And let me tell you why. Why were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so convinced that God would deliver them from the fiery furnace? I think they remembered the words of Isaiah 43, which was a prophecy made a century earlier, which addressed Israel going to exile in Babylon. And there God said, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God promised to be with and personally deliver his people through trials of fire. And here they were, in the middle of the hottest fire imaginable. And who should we expect then would be the one to appear and deliver them? Their their God, the Lord, the Savior. Not a son of the gods, as in Babylonian myth, but the eternal son of the one, true, living, and real God, the second person of the Trinity. So what should we take from this? Friends, as we reject the idols of this world, and as we live for the Lord, we will suffer persecution. And the Lord never promises to exempt us from hardship. We enter the kingdom through many tribulations, not by escaping many tribulations. But the Lord will deliver us in and through the trials that we face. Jesus promised us in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And those promises are especially critical to remember when we are in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We can rejoice in trials because the testing of our faith produces endurance, the book of James says. It develops an ability to endure within us, which is a part of our sanctification. Here we learn that we can we can rejoice when we suffer for Christ because we're following Christ's footsteps and we are being better prepared to enjoy the glory when it is revealed. And that's because the Holy Spirit's with us and he will help us face the challenge. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Friends, God is with us in the hardest trials of our lives and he will see us through them. And maybe we'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we will see a miraculous deliverance in this life. I wish that were always the case. But sometimes across Christian history, we have seen that it is God's will to allow his people to suffer persecution unto death. But even where that is God's will, he will give us the strength to face that challenge and to die a death that honors and glorifies him. As I read this passage, I was reminded of the faith of Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, who courageously faced burning at the stake for being Protestants. The ancient pastor Polycarp, who was burned at the stake for believing in Jesus. He had an ordeal much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, except his ended with his death. But before he was burned, he said this You threaten with the fire that burns for a time, and it's quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in an everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. Friends, sometimes God's people go to their deaths because of their faith. And should God call us to that, we must face it with courage and faith. But I tell you this, either in life or death, God will bring his own people safely through the fiery trials that this world inflicts. And he will bring us home to glory. Like the Jewish men in this story, one day we will be fully vindicated. And we will enjoy ultimate victory and joy and bliss. This world does what it can to us while it can, but it is not almighty. The threats and the torments of this world are not the final word which will be written over our lives if we have trusted Christ because Jesus is with his people, and he will deliver us through our fiery trials, and he will use those trials to burn the dross off from our lives and to get us to be more serious about him, to make us more like Jesus. And through these many trials, one day we will be brought home. So I want to conclude with this, friends. Let's get serious about our faith. You know, Mormon men give up two years of their lives to go on the mission field, to go around and proclaim a false gospel about a space alien. Muslims, uh, even now, now, some Muslims in the West are uh, fairly secularized, but most Muslims worldwide are quite devout. I'm not, I'm not talking about extremists here, but in matters of diet and how they conduct themselves and all of that. They're quite devout. They take their faith very seriously, even though it's a false faith. Buddhist monks set themselves on fire to make political protests deceived by a demonic lie. Friends, all of these people are serious about their faith. Why is it that Christians in this country just can't be bothered? Friends, we live in serious times. The easy days may be over. The hard days may be here. Now is not a time for retreat and timidity. The faux Christianity I'm talking about is not going to sustain us in the hard times. Now is not a time for business as usual. Now is a time for seriousness and boldness. Let's get serious about the Lord. Let's get serious about his word. Let's get serious about prayer and about evangelism. And let's do hard things. And let's take difficult stands. And let's cast ourselves on Jesus because he won't let us down. And let's do what Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of this chapter, as he summarizes the conduct of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they trusted in the Lord and they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. May that be true of us. May we put it all on the line for Jesus, for the evil days are becoming short. So let us redeem the time well and wisely.